This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. The pointer offered by Hafiz. The subject tonight is love, and for tomorrow night as well. As a matter of fact, I know no better topic for us to discuss until we die. Preface to the Assembly, offered by David Abram. There are so many unsung heroines and heroes at this broken moment in our collective story. So many courageous persons who, unbeknownst to themselves, are holding the world by their resolute love or contagious joy. Although I do not know your names, I can feel you out there. So this weekend we are ending a Wild Grasses retreat, and it's our annual women's session. And Hojin Sensei will speak a little bit about the name and how it came about, so I, I won't do that. But A couple of days ago, I said to the women that throughout the weekend, we were walking a live line between tradition and investigation. That we were looking at some of these ancient forms and also seeing, studying how some of them could perhaps be adapted to better suit this particular manifestation, right? This female body, this female mind. And we've never done this, actually. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So far, so good. So far, so good. (laughs) And one of the things we did, uh, in keeping in uh, with the theme of the of the Ango, is invite our our female ancestors into the room. We invited them into this training hall, and we shared some of their stories. Uh, Hojin Sensei chanted their poems, some of their poems. We sat and worked and ate alongside them. And and we can think of ancestors in many different ways, but uh, let me offer three overlapping uh, spheres, three kind of overarching categories. There's our ancestors by virtue of place, by virtue of blood, and by virtue of tradition. And our ancestors, by virtue of place, are those with whom we share the land. In this case, they are, in fact, the land which they and we inhabit. And unfortunately, many of us no longer live in the land where we were born, for example. And so that connection becomes more distant. But when, when this ancestry, when it, when it is connected and it's embodied and it is, it is in fact intimately connected to the land. And so it's not uh, unusual, it's not a surprise that the more uh, distant we become, the more disembodied, alienated we feel. Like in our, in our culture, this, this pervasive sense of being displaced or misplaced, even within this body, this particular tract of land. 
And our ancestors understood very well that you cannot live without land. You can't really be apart from it. You can certainly place layers and layers of cement or distance between you and it in an effort to buffer yourself from what is too raw, too ungoverned about the land you inhabit. But you can also turn toward it and learn to move with its rhythm. And a few days ago, I was telling one of the residents, there's a, a place in southern Mexico, all the way south, uh, where there's a pyramid called the Pyramid of Chichen Itza. And every spring and fall equinoxes are marked by the descent of this plumed serpent all the way from the top of the pyramid to its bottom. And so what happens is that as the sun reaches its zenith, this perfectly formed snake, plume serpent uh, of light and shadow descends the steps of the pyramid. And it takes five hours for it to get all the way down. And then it remains in place for 45 minutes. And then it begins to descend. So the tail slowly begins to come down until it disappears into the ground. And I think of this someone or someones with this precise mathematical knowledge, architectural knowledge, astronomical knowledge, who conceived of this idea and went to all the trouble to execute it. And did they know that some 600 years later, people would still be gathering from all over the world to witness this beautiful, very simple, mysterious creation. And even if they didn't think in this way, that they still thought it worthwhile to spend their time and energy, their effort to create this. If I'm, I'm despairing of human nature, I think of things like this. Our blood ancestors are our family, right? the people that we are tied to through blood and guts and sweat and toil, the final frontier of practice, <laughs> I call family. They give us our, our history, they give us our look, our looks, our aspects of our personality, our inclinations, in, in many ways, our ways of seeing the world. And of course, this connection is a very intimate connection, even when it is a troubled one. They are, after all, in our blood, as we are in theirs. So he said, people whom we love, people whom at times we can't stand, but whom we cannot really ever be separated from, for better or for worse. And I was remembering as I was writing this, it was a little bit of an odd memory, but I remembered that when my brother and I were very young, my mother would uh, every now and then joke, rather darkly, I, I think, that she had found me in the woods and my brother behind a dumpster. <laughs> and that she had felt sorry for us and she picked us up and decided to, to raise us. And I couldn't remember why she would say this. I mean, what was the purpose? And she said it you know, jokingly. Um, and the only reason she could do it and we wouldn't just completely freak out is because my brother and I looked so alike that people thought we were twins. And he was the spitting image of my mother and I'm the spitting image of my father. So clearly we were flesh and blood. Sentence is tough, love that of your blood, ancestors. And, and 
with that odd uh, memory, which I hadn't had actually in a very long time, I also felt um, very much the presence of my mother. She's been dead for 25 years. And I still feel her and hear her. And it's interesting that the Buddhist teachings say that we choose our parents, which depending on your relationship with them may be uh, difficult to accept. But one theory is that we choose them, that we choose people that we're actually already related to through our karma. And that we're um, trying by coming into the world in their presence to work things out, to continue to develop, to clarify, hopefully eventually break free of these very um, tightly tied knots sometimes. And then there are ancestors by virtue of our tradition, and these are those with whom we share a, a spiritual practice and therefore a common aspiration recognized or not, stated or implicit, clear or not. And so they're a different kind of a blood lineage. And here I was reflecting, you know, in, in the week um, that I was um, involved in the, in the work leading up to the transmission, uh, there was a lot of bowing to the ancestors, a lot of bowing, several times a day, to the women ancestors, the male ancestors, and after, by the second day, you feel, you can't help but feel yourself in the midst of this stream. You're completely immersed in it. This thread that extends backwards all of these many generations, that extends hopefully forward all of these many generations. And you feel this line, of course, you know, for most of these people whom you've never met, and yet you have. You feel that you have, that you are with them in that room doing those vows. They are there with you. The only place, actually, where they live. St. Augustine called, uh, he, he coined this term, um, the constant present. And he said, if you take the smallest unit of time that would be indivisible, that's the present. But he said, it's not only that, that single instant contains all of the past and all of the future. It's what in fact connects it, and not only connects it, but contains it, holds it, which is of course also a very Buddhist view. We say that a single moment contains a thousand kalpas, a thousand kalpas in a single moment. Likewise, our ancestors exist only and always now, which means they can never leave us. They are never apart. Actualizing Buddha ancestors <clears throat> means to bring them forth and look at them in veneration. It is not limited to Buddhas of the past, present, and future, but it is going beyond Buddhas who are going beyond themselves. It is taking up those who have maintained the face and eye of Buddha ancestors, formally bowing and meeting them. They have manifested the virtue of the Buddha ancestors, dwelt in it, and actualized it in the body. We are, of course, working with this passage for the Ango. 
And this bringing forth of good ancestors happens with the body and it happens with the mind. Of course, how else? How else could it take place? And so every day we invite our ancestors into this room, into our homes, through our liturgy, through the act of sitting in the same exact posture that they have sat in generation after generation, <clears throat> through a raising of the body-mind, through choosing clarity over confusion. And part of the work that they do, simply by reason of their, their being, their existence, is to remind us that what we're doing is not new. So this practice is not new. Our struggles aren't new. Freedom from those struggles is not new either. And this is not insignificant to realize this, to know in the midst of the tumult of your mind that thousands, if not millions of people have gone through something similar, if not exactly like what you're going through. And that if they pass through it, you can too. I mean, even a small gesture, when our teacher nods as we're speaking about some difficulty or other, and they say, yes, I know what you mean. That can give us such an enormous sense of confidence, reassurance. Oh, I mean, I'm not unique. There's nothing inherently wrong with me. I'm not failing in my practice, I'm just caught. I can't see the way through right now, but I will. And so again, we're never practicing alone. Not even in the, in the darkest pit of hell or in the highest, brightest state of bliss. And so when we know this, I believe that then the natural response is to bring forth our Buddha ancestors and to look at them in veneration, to formally bow and meet them, which is none other than meeting ourselves. But what does that really mean to regard oneself and to regard others with veneration? One of my favorite ancestors is Bodhisattva Never Disparaging, who appears in the Lotus Sutra. And it says there that this monk, whenever he would meet someone, monk, nun, layman, laywoman, would bow in obeisance to them. And he would speak words of praise saying, I have profound reverence for you. I would never dare disparage you. Why? Because you are all practicing the Bodhisattva way and are certain to attain Buddhahood. And when people would hear this, they would become enraged. How dare he predict Buddhahood for us? Who does he think he is? And they would throw stones at him, they would hit him with sticks, and he would run to the other side of the road from a safe distance, yell, I would never dare disparage you, <laughs> because you too will attain Buddhahood. This is one, just one of the many Buddha ancestors worth venerating and emulating, I think. One uh, steadfast, conviction, um, how did Dylan call it, a, a virtue, a virtue worth manifesting in this moment and in this moment and in this moment, in that constant presence 
a present, which of course is the only place where practice and realization are actualized. So this great love of the Buddhas and ancestors, what is this that we feel from both people, these, these ways that, as we say, said, this land, these mountains, these rivers, things, the love that's offered and that we receive for our life that holds the world together. Meeting and healing with our ancestors requires that we encounter all of these things inside ourselves and understand the connections between who we are today and who they were, what they are. If there are people back there who need working with, this is our chance. If there is land back there that needs working with, this is our chance. And having the opportunity to connect with the Buddha Dharma, with this practice, we have a chance, especially through Zazen, to do the deep work of understanding how we got to be in whatever weirdness we are, whatever weirdness you are in. For me, um, the relationship with the ancestors is inspired by having um, this desire to have an ongoing relationship with this world, with everything in it. The ancestors' wisdom is quite unusual partly because they're no longer trapped in this body, the people. So I always saw this as uh, an employment opportunity, that um, our ancestors are, have a job, and they need employment. And they're always ready to engage as soon as we turn towards them. They want us to continue awakening to the greatest potential as humans. They want us to help them resolve the mistakes they made and left us with messes. To help us work better with our own mistakes. That is their wisdom and how to carry it forth in how we live in harmony with things. So if you don't have a job, you actually do too. We're all employed. We're all still involved. And we've been shaped not only by our human ancestors, but by our environments in which they lived. So the sooner we get started, the better. So the Buddha started over 2,500 years ago, and he simply sat down and clearly saw the situation, the nature of things. And then he just started to talk to people about it, telling them what he saw. He explained what he understood. In turn, they taught others, and they taught others, and they taught others. 
This is what we call lineage. In his awakening, he had that experience of he can't help but always see another as himself. I spoke about this yesterday, this, that we can't help. It was one of my, my askets for, for my life, that I always see one another as myself. And this is why we say their names, bring them to life, to see another, to see ourselves. What is the great love of Buddha ancestors? Practicing the Buddha's Dharma. That's what we're doing here today, all engaging, discovering ourselves to be in a great flowing river of continuities. And part of our task is to discover how our ancestors do inform our lives and are continuing to be here in our hearts and minds. From this uh, book, The Buddha, from Karen Armstrong, she writes, The Dharma is essentially a method and it stands or falls not by its metaphysicality or acuity or its scientific accuracy, but the extent to which it works. The The truths claim to bring suffering to an end, not because people subscribe to a salvistic creed or to certain beliefs, but because they adopt the Buddhist program or way of life. Over the centuries, people have indeed found that this regimen has brought them a measure of peace and insight. They have realized that by reaching beyond themselves to reality that transcends their rational understanding, they become fully human. For Buddha, this was a fact. For him, his method worked, (laughs) and we're offered to explore it. Does it work for you? How do you know? So in Zazen, we place ourselves on the seat in our Buddha nature that's never apart from us. And I feel there, at least I can recite any lineage in gratitude, any lineage, the earth, my family, my ancestors, They're all there, aren't they, when we sit down? Your whole family's sitting with you. Sometimes in ways you'd like them to, like, leave. (laughs) But to be in awe and surprise, with humility, with love. You know, we go after ourself, like something, we did something wrong. As long as we practice, none of our ancestors are dead. Our fathers are alive, our mothers are alive. The trees we've lost, mountains, rivers, are alive. And the breadth of the depth of the teaching is seeing when we expand our ancestry in every way, every line of every species is our line. They're all our ancestors. Telling, retelling, shaping, reshaping. We can return to the stories, the history, and question, is this true? Verify it. 
See how it works for you. Me, in doing so, will change ourselves, change the world, change each other. There are so many unsung heroines and heroes at this broken moment in our collective story. So many courageous persons who, unbeknownst to themselves, are holding together the world by their resolute love and contagious joy. Although I do not know your names, I can feel you out there. The ancestors didn't go cold. They stayed in the fires of samsara, in the craziness, to help, to help themselves and know that they can't be liberated without everyone coming along. The Buddha had it, you know, when he realized himself, said he went into the forest for a while wondering if he should, if he could do it, if, if anybody would actually see what was real and true. There's so much cloudiness. And of course, guess what? <laughs> he returned. So I love this story with uh, Vimalakirti in the Vimalakirti Sutra, who was a lay, um, a layman, a lay householder with a wife and children. And it was said that he had the realization that was um, equal to the Buddha. It's where our white robe comes from. He wore a white robe. And he begins the sutra by describing to Manjushri, one of the great luminaries, the insubstantiability substantiability of things. Manjushri, a bodhisattva, should regard all living beings as wise ones regards the reflections of the moon and water, as magicians regard people created by magic, like being a, like, being like a face in a mirror, like water in a mirage, like the sound of an echo, like a mass of clouds in the sky, like the previous moment of a ball of foam, like the appearance and disappearance of a bubble of water. All these very, what do we see in these images? This kind of fragility, this momentariness, like the track of a bird in a sky, like dream visions seen after waking, like the perception of color in one blind from birth. Precisely thus, Manjushri, does a bodhisattva who realizes ultimate selflessness consider all beings. So when we first encounter a teaching like this, it could be kind of maddening, right? If people are like bubbles of water or balls of foam, why should we care about them? Why? Do we just wander around seeing other people are nothing more than dreams or images, mirages? What does this mean in terms of our daily life and ordinary human relationships? Manjushri helps us frame our question when he says to Vimalakirti, Noble sir, if a bodhisattva considers all living beings in such a way, how does he generate the great love toward them? Yes, how can this be that living beings are like clouds of foam, the sound of an echo? 
Doesn't our whole life involve relationship with people, with things? What is Vimalakirti talking about? We may think we shouldn't care about other people or things. This earth. And I think we can go to our direct experience, most of us. Not caring cannot be right understanding. We know what that feels like. We know what that feels like. Bhimalakirti says in response to Manjushi's question, how does a bodhisattva generate great love? Manjushri, when a bodhisattva considers all living beings in this way, he thinks, just as I have realized the Dharma, so should I teach it to living beings. Thereby, he generates the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. So we see quite a shift in Vilma Kirti's point of view. He just finished saying that living beings are insubstantial as a ball of foam. And then when challenged to explain how he could love them, people are back. He begins talking about living beings in a much more conventional way. As Kumarajiva, an early translator of this sutra, points out, living beings feel real to themselves. They have the living being feeling. (laughs) So us here as bodhisattvas who want to help them, we immediately inhabit that realm. We too enter into that living, being, feeling. In Vimalakirti's words, we generate the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. He continues, Vimalakirti, thereby he generates the love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. The love that is peaceful because free of grasping, not feverish from, because free of passions, the love that is non-dual because it involved neither with the external nor the internal, the love that is imperturbable because it is totally ultimate. Here what comes to us is the feeling of a bodhisattva, not just the understanding. An important terrain of practice has to do with our emotional life. We are feeling beings. We have an emotional life. And it's establishing a radical openness and compassion. Vimalakirti evokes how a mature Dharma practitioner actually feels. Thereby, he generates the love that is firm, its high resolve unbreakable like a diamond, the love that is pure, purified in its intrinsic nature, the love that is even, its aspirations being equal, the Tathagata's love that understands reality, the Buddha's love that causes living beings to awaken from their sleep, 
the love that is spontaneous because it is fully enlightened spontaneously, the love that is enlightenment because it is unity of experience, the love that is no presumption because it has eliminated attachment and aversion, the love that is great compassion because it infuses the Mahayana with radiance, the love that is never exhausted because it acknowledges voidness and selflessness, the love that is giving because it bestows the gift of Dharma free of a tight fist of a bad teacher, the love that is effort because it takes responsibility for all living beings, the love that is wisdom because it causes attainment at the proper time, the love that it was without formality because it is pure motivation, pure in motivation. Without the radiance, Buddhism can be very dry. Manjushri is kind of an example of that. Maybe he's our fall guy in this. In In that passage, he comes off, I think, a little dry in his understanding. He's not completely opened up emotionally. He doesn't radiate the way Vimalakirti does. From our ordinary point of view, hearing Vimalakirti describe living beings as balls of foam or clouds in the sky is a celebration of the living beings we are as insubstantial and always changing. But that is precisely why we want to awaken, why we care, because we are in an emotional, feelingful life. That is why we generate the love that is truly a refuge for ourselves, for others. Manjushri's wisdom is good, but until it's opened up emotionally with the great love, the great metta, loving kindness that Vimalakirti evokes, evokes, there's something incomplete about it. Where is that in us, too, as we look at ourselves? It's only when we have this kind of sparkling care for living beings that we can be complete and open in our relationships with other people, with things, with this earth. Then the Dharma comes alive, not as something to understand, but as something to live wherever we go, whatever we do. And I'd like to bring in Kyoto Williams, because she speaks in this, in such a way, in this loving language at this time. And she says, there is no truth if it does not come out of love. None. The only truth there is must necessarily come out of love. Not squishy appeasement, not fuzzy feel-goodness, not progressive perkiness, rooted, heartfelt, open, exposed, devastating, precise, unpredictable, messy, messy love. Can't say it much better. And when you find yourself in rich, this is still her, and when you find yourself in your rich imagination of control of knowing something, 
of having ideas and concepts about how it all works that is not rooted in love. Please remember that this, that it is that mind stuff that generated this misperception that we are all abiding in right now. That if you could make one incredible promise to yourself, it would be that you would stop and reflect on every word that you speak. Does this come from love? Does this action come from love? Does this actually come from love? And if it doesn't, take it back, burn it in the fire pit of your being, and wait for that which shines forth as love. Like Emily Dickinson said, I put a word on a page and I just stare at it until it shines. And maybe this is Dogen's way of saying it too. It's taking up those who have maintained the face and eye of Buddha ancestors, formally bowing and meeting them. They have manifested the virtue of the Buddha ancestors, dwelt in it, and actualized it in the body. (laughs) I think that's good for now. For more talks, to get information about Zuisei Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.